In a world where it seems totally normal to listen to a podcast about the Toronto Argonauts, it's the X's and Argos Podcast. Welcome to the X's and Argos post-game reaction podcast brought to you by Funny Bone Broth. Ben Grant, along with JB, as always, as the Toronto Argonauts take down the Montreal Alouettes 34-27, and the Argos are off to the Grey Cup. Initial reaction, JB. <laughs> yeah, fantastic game. Really great performance by the offense. Defense bended but didn't break uh, enough for they, Montreal. They broke a few times. Yeah, not enough. Like uh, a few cracks, but never, never totally broke. Um, great crowd, freezing cold, but you could tell the players were really jacked by like how into it it was. Like it was, uh, as I thought it would be, it was, it was the best Argos crowd in years. Yeah. I mean, there was a go Argos go chant that I think caught the players by surprise. Yeah, it was it was electric. The energy was something. It took a while for everyone to get in. It didn't really fill up until I, I feel like the end of the first quarter. Finally, yeah. everyone had made it to their seats. It was not easy getting down there today. But yeah, what a what a crowd! the The atmosphere, the environment, and the thing is, it it would be amazing if it were like that every game. And you wish it could. And hopefully, some of these people <laughs> that came today and, remember this experience and, I and say sign to up for all tickets. Those people, like it's really way better in August. Yeah, like it was so it's cold nicer. today and like the wind is whipping your face and like it's way, way better in August. I, I just can't tell you how much better it is. But, uh, you know, God love them for showing up. It it made a difference. It was uh, I, I think it, it probably made a difference in the game, um, the way that game could have gone either way. But I think the quick start by the Argos uh, was really fed. I, I think those guys absolutely fed off the first real crowd of the season. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I've seen, and you know, it's hard to tell because how much of that is also, it is an East final. And so guys are, are pretty jacked up anyway, but there was an electricity on the sideline. Like look at the Argos bench that I haven't seen to that degree before. And there was a lot of interacting with the crowd too. Guys when they were off, um, and especially guys that weren't in too. You saw you saw players like uh, Shane Richards, for example, was uh, you know up on his feet, facing the crowd, getting them cheering, getting them making noise during defensive possessions and things like that. They There was so much more fan interaction from the bench. They certainly noticed it and it seemed to be contagious. It, it sort of the, the energy from the fans um, poured onto the field and impacted the players. Let's go through some of the some of the elements from this game. There's so much. I've got so many notes here that I want to talk about and, and, and things we'll get to. We'll, of course, go through some of the stats and plays of the game, players of the game, all that stuff as we work our way through. We'll start chronologically and then sort of see where it goes from there. Uh, let's start with the wind because it was one of the first things I noticed when we sat down. Wind coming from the north, which it I think is only done one other time this season. One of the nice things about BMO is that it's it, usually if you're going to get any kind of breeze, it is straight in one direction. It is either north or south. The way the stadium is constructed, you don't get weird crosswinds that really ruin games sometimes. This wind was a factor, but it wasn't to the degree where we've seen it before, especially in games in Hamilton, where it completely shuts down one team's offense for for a quarter. It wasn't like that today, but it did impact 
the game in in certain areas certainly in the in early stages in the kicking game and even with the coin flip for example you want to talk about that a little bit uh, well i mean it impacted the game in terms of me wanting to throw my cup of hot chocolate onto the field uh to begin the second half well so and for friends that don't know what happened there because i did have a few questions about that on twitter so the argos won the toss they elected to defer and so Montreal chose to take the ball and the Argos chose to take the wind in the second quarter, which is the longer quarter because the last three minutes of both the second and fourth quarter stretch the game out and you end up with, you know, having like a dozen more uh, or half a dozen more snaps in, in the second and fourth quarters. And so come second half, the Argos now, now it is their choice. And typically what teams do here is they take the ball. But what the Argos did is deferred in the second half. So Montreal took the ball again. That's why Montreal started both the first and third quarters returning the football. I think that was a good call. And I'll expand on that after you rant for a little bit, JB. You clearly did not <laughs> no, think that was a good call. It was not a good call. Uh, the wind was gusty. I will grant you that. But it was, we've had this conversation before. It was nowhere near play affecting. Uh, and you could tell in the fourth quarter, Montreal didn't have any problem moving the ball at all in the air. It at no point was kick affecting or throwing affecting. It was just cold and miserable. Um, I, I couldn't believe they were giving up an opportunity to start that second half, put a dagger in Montreal, put that fire out that Montreal had started at the end of the first half, uh, but instead decided to give Montreal a chance to keep that fire going and Montreal did and and you know nearly took the game um <laughs> you know the 55 yard run play right after they uh right after they received the kick uh so I I'm going to I'm going to say no to that play uh the wind was not nearly strong enough to be for me it, it's so rare that the wind is strong enough to give up um, getting the ball on the kickoff like that is not a small thing to give up I need I need game affecting wind and it just was not game affecting um, so I thought that was uh, the wrong call that they escaped with by the skin of their teeth here's why I like the call so you start off by deferring which they were going to do either way so you defer Montreal takes the ball in the first half you now have time and it's not like you it's not like they had to decide right at that moment and we're going to also kick in the second half you wait and see what the situation is and you get into halftime the Argos at that point have an 11 point lead and now you're saying this is this is a good scenario here because they have to, they're going to be in a situation where in all likelihood, they're going to be trailing in the fourth quarter and psychologically knowing you're down, knowing you're going to have to take chances you don't want to take and you're going into the wind. And I know it wasn't a hurricane, but it was still wind. It did affect things. No. Trevor Harris, after the game, talked about how it did affect his deeper throws, that it was causing problems for him. Uh, and there were a couple of balls that he had to throw <laughs> differently or throw to different places. Maybe. So it, it did. Like the players were aware of it. And not only that, the kickers are aware of it too. You could see in pregame warmup watching them kick, they had an extra five to 10 yards going one way than they did another way. So with that 11 point lead, they have the luxury of not needing 
the ball first in that third quarter. And so you take the win in the fourth. I think I think it's a good call. You If it's a tie game there, it's going differently. Maybe you think about it in a different way. But with that 11-point lead, the defense, you know, hadn't been amazing. But all season long, they've, they've been a pretty strong defense. Yeah. You have to think with it, a running third quarter, you can get to the fourth with the lead. And they did. It was a gamble. They, I mean, don't forget, they, went, they gave up eight points in like 30 seconds to start the second half. At no point is that a good strategy. Well, yes, and they did. And so, we'll get to... So it, 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 their strategy didn't work. They just got lucky. But their strategy, it, did, it, it they got unlucky is what happened because Montreal <laughs> had the wind in the third, but they scored on a 50-yard uh, run play. They gave up eight points in 35 seconds to Montreal, and then they were able to poke. They were able to, to fix that mistake. But anyways, I, I digress. So let's go. Let's go through the actual gameplay now that we've talked about the coin for for ten minutes. Uh, so uh, first of all, let's talk about Chandler Worthy because clearly Chandler Worthy was in Toronto's head to start the game, and I thought it, it became less of an issue as they went forward. But those first few kicks, you started with a pooch kick um, to open the game, which I actually liked. I thought that was executed really well. It came down about the thirty-five. And remember, there's there's no halo on kickoffs. He, he barely had time to field it. He didn't really get anywhere in the return. And I would have been happy if they'd executed every kickoff like that all day. But that kick certainly was different because it was Chandler Worthy. But then it caused problems later. They had a, a punt which netted four yards after a penalty because it went out of bounds. Uh, they tried to sort of pooch another one later and it didn't go well. Worthy was able to return it. And, and so... I don't know. Were you in favor of the strategy of let's just not let Worthy burn us, or yeah, would you no, been more aggressive? I, I, no, I was. I liked it. I, I liked the pooch kicks. Um, I didn't like Haggerty's chance of being on the Grey Cup starting roster, but I did like the the pooch kicks. I thought that was the way to play it. Um, I thought that the they did a nice job um, cornering a couple of the kicks. Um, that 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 made sense to me. Give up, yeah, you, you're giving up 10, 15 yards, uh, but you'd be happy starting at the thirty-five. You never had a momentum-changing return, and and the return team did a terrific job of of coverage. Yeah, it Haggerty's day was not great. His he had two punts, uh, I believe one in each half. The the first punt. I believe traveled 14 yards and there was a penalty because it went out of bounds. And then the second punt was 40. Again, going into the wind, that is a thing. It's something that you have to think about. But that that was crushing to a a play where, you know, you wonder even about about going for it in that scenario. You wonder about throwing the challenge flag because it was coming off a play. That was the play where Banks was going out of bounds right before that. And you're thinking, well, should I, you know, should we use the challenge here? They decided not to. And we'll, let's talk about that in a second. But uh, then they end up, it was such a momentum killing uh, few minutes there where it looked like Banks made a spectacular catch on the sideline. They rule he didn't. It's not challenged. And then you punt the ball, netted four yards uh, after the penalty, actually, just look at this. So, you and, and I do think, I mean, obviously, McLeod was pretty in favor of a challenge there, um, and the coaches, to their, you know, to their, um, you know, uh, credit, felt it wasn't challengeable and weren't going to be bullied into it. Um, but I do think it did affect because when they later had the challenge, which was not 
a better challenge. I do. I felt like there was probably a feeling of um, how many times am I just going to overrule my offense? Um, you know, that you need to kind of have your offenses back. And, and I felt that kind of played into, I don't think they challenged the second one if they hadn't turned down the first one. Yeah, I agree. And neither should have been challenged. No, and I, I tweeted how many both ta- things. Right. But how, how many times time. can you do that, right? You have to, there's a, a psychological aspect too. It is possible that on that Banks play, he did get a part of a knee or a foot down before he went out of bounds. It's possible, but you just can't, you can't, even on the first view of the replay, you realize right away, well, there's no, there's no way this is getting overturned. Maybe he did, but we can't tell conclusively. So it's just not going to happen. And so he was correct in not throwing that challenge flag. And I, I really thought he was going to, because like you said, the McLeod Bethel Thompson's jumping up and down. Banks is jumping up and down. The whole offense is like, throw the flag. I know. And, and, then, and he, he and didn't. Then they- punted in reverse it was not Ugh. it was not a, that could have been that could have been a game a game sinking moment there were a couple of game sinking moments that uh, somehow the Argos <laughs> were able to to drive by as you know um, amazing and the second challenge it's another one that yeah it's pass interference but you've talked about this before with challenges yes it's pass interference but that happens on every single play if you overrule that then it means you have to rule in favor of overruling every non-PI call ever, which happens, you know, 30 times yeah, a, a Especially in the game. red zone. They're never going to throw a flag on handsy defense in the red zone. You just have to live with handsy defense. Yeah, exactly. And so we we haven't we barely even we haven't even really got to the game yet. Let's let's get into this a little bit here. Something I thought was interesting defensively, I was kind of looking at what Toronto was doing personnel-wise, a lot in that opening quarter because we had a, a kind of like a, a, a wealth of talent that Coach Jim Woody hasn't had uh, all season with healthy bodies coming back. So I was interested to see what they did with Jonathan Jones, with how they played McManus, and we'll, we'll get to his injury in a moment too. And then on offense, what they did with Olette and Harris. And I thought in those first couple of drives, I was really impressed with how Coach Dinwiddie was managing personnel. So let's talk about the defense first. Interestingly, on second and long situations, Muamba was coming out. Now, in talking to him after the game, he said this was something that he and McManus were arranging. On second and long, when they switched to that sort of uh, 7DB look that they like to go to, one of them would come out and they just sort of communicated as to who that would be. And on the first couple, it was Moamba. And I, I don't know if I like that situation for him. He takes away the middle of the field because we saw a couple times on second and long, Harris hit uh, 10-yard digs, which are, that's, that's Moamba's specialty. You look at every pick Moamba has over the last couple of seasons, 10-yard digs and drag routes, he makes a difference in. And I thought by bringing him out, even though McManus is obviously a great player, bringing Muamba out opens up the middle of the field. So I, I think you, I think that was something I would rather they found a, a different solution for that. And maybe you take McManus out and leave Muamba out there, which I guess they could have done. But, you know, what do you think of that, that look for second and long? Yeah, I, I, I like it. I, I, it didn't, I didn't want them really to, to rush the quarterback, um, a ton. I, I would have had a little more heat 
in a few situations because um, I felt like they really were giving him enough time to to make that read. Um, but yeah, I mean that that makes sense to me. I think you know in terms of um, Mwamba coming out and and giving up the the middle of the field there to whomever. It you know it it that was their philosophy. You know I I can't I mean. I mean, they gave up 28 points, but, I, you know, they won the day. And that first defensive drive ends with a Montreal punt that goes into the end zone. And this was this is one of my favorite press conference moments because you've lived through this as a coach, you know, as as have I many times where you see something happening on the field and it's like in slow motion and you're you're you know, you start yelling things and that even feels like it's slow motion. No. Banks picks up the football in the end zone and it looks like he's going to take a knee and then he sees some space and breaks to the outside and coach Dinwiddie said as this is happening he's like no don't take it out because in his view he's like give up the single you get to the 40 that's that's huge now we're a couple first downs away from kicking a field goal but fortunately Banks was able to get it 31 yards out now coach Dinwiddie said he would still like it at the 40 to give up a point but 31 yards is is a pretty good return. I I like that he took it out because I I think you know Banks Banks is a smart player. If he if he sees I'm only going to get to the 4, he's not going to take that ball out. He would have gone down. He was waiting to see what materialized there and he saw he basically had one-on-one with a backup linebacker and so he took it and he was able to almost break it. One more block and he's gone there. So 31 yards to me that's those 9 yards I would rather take the 31 yard line and not give up a point as opposed to give up a point and take it at the 40 and I feel like he made a smart call there. He would have gone down if it wasn't open. Yeah, he had a, he had a terrific game. I mean, he he's kind of been a <laughs> a, a bit of a comet this year where just some games he comes in and he's all world and then we don't see him again for 76 years but uh he played amazing today you know in the final he was absolutely one of the key cogs of of the offense he was although he had two moments that i was really frustrated by and so one was the catch that actually kept the drive alive their first drive alive that you know that drive that ends in a touchdown we'll break down how that happened in a moment but a key play to that was a catch that he made off his foot. And the reason I'm frustrated by this is because it was just, it was a great ball. He had found space. It was, I think it was a second and long situation. He'd found space down there. He was sitting by the sideline. Bethel Thompson gave him a great ball, chest high, and he turned to run before he caught it. And you've seen that so many times watching football games over the years. Receivers do this. And a veteran like him, he's got to know better just to catch it cleanly first he already had the first down he was trying to get into the end zone he ends up making an amazing play i don't know what it is with that corner of the field because that's the that's the same area that he made that ridiculous touchdown catch against winnipeg uh early in the season same kind of thing where like what how how on earth did he end up coming out with this football this was a lack of focus he kind of hacky sacks it back up to himself as he's going to the ground and makes that catch but while that's a great play and an amazing play. I'm also really frustrated by it. And I, I don't quite know how to how to justify that play in my head. And then you have the the other play late in the game. Uh, late in the game. I guess it was the third quarter at that stage. 
and he's going out of bounds. He's wide open. Again, it's going to convert a second and long situation, but he allows his toe to get out of bounds. It was really close on the sideline, but as a veteran receiver, you just have to be better with your feet. He's got to hold his foot back. He had all sorts of space. There's no one near him. And so I expect better from a player like that. He caught it cleanly, but he had a toe out of bounds. And and that, to me, just it, it just has to be better. So he did have a good game. He had some really... Uh, amazing moments. Well, but he, I was frustrated. He'll with never him. be a technical receiver. Uh, you know, that's just not. I just don't think that's his his thing. To be honest, you know, he he makes great plays, but he is not like a kind of <laughs> fundamental. He is not a fundamental player. Where you you know look at Daniels, who is a professional receiver, and um, you know would never make those mistakes, but. But Banks brings you this, like, alchemy, you know, this, like, maybe something good, maybe something terrible. But um, there's a when he is on, it, it, it adds a real energy to the offense that uh, I, I don't know what to make of. It's almost pinball-esque. Yeah, he has, like, Banks is like, is like a die that only has a six and a one on it, right? Like, you're, yeah. you're, you're rolling one of the two, but, uh, so it's, it's going to be big either way. Uh, and that can be frustrating, but it can but, also be amazing. Yeah, but he's, but there's no doubt he still has game breaker in him. It's like the, sort of the offensive version of Chris Edwards. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So that first touchdown is set up by a really nice play design. They got, Harris and Olette on the field at the same time. Harris is in the backfield. Olette is the inside guy to the quad side out to Bethel Thompson's right. And I love everything about this play design. They they play action to Harris. Harris is running from right to left, so away from the quads. Bethel Thompson pulls it and flips it out to Olette. And they have huge numbers. Because remember that Montreal was coming into this game with a small linebacking core. They didn't have Awe. They were going to be undersized in the middle, obviously worried about the power run game. And there you are on the first drive with heavy play action to Andrew Harris that completely sucked in all the backers. And now that left a a huge numbers advantage to Toronto on the outside. And so that to me is that's that's Coach Dinwiddie just making uh, a really uh, intelligent uh, play design, knowing what Montreal was going to be, you know, coming into this with. So that ends up going for 46 yards. Uh, Olette took that all the way down to the Montreal 17. And then a couple plays later, they're in the end zone. So to me, that was that was really nice play design by by Coach Dinwiddie. Well set up by him. Obviously, Olette had to do the actual running. And then you've got that Banks catch off the foot. And then Andrew Harris runs in the football from six yards out for his first touchdown as a Toronto Argonaut and it comes in the Eastern final. Yeah, I think I think he was a little disappointed with how easy it was. I, I don't like it's true. I, I don't it, know what no happened there. Him. It looked like Mon- it looked like Montreal didn't get the call in um based on like the body language of the defenders and they played like they didn't get the call in cuz they just ran in from 6 yards. <laughs> Yeah, no one, no one came near him. It, I actually thought, initially, I thought the play was blown dead because it looked like nobody moved on the Montreal side of the ball. And I mean, I'm anxious to rewatch a number of things yeah, from I don't this think game. They, I don't think they got the call in. I think it was as simple as that. And I, I guess, <laughs> I don't know, I guess they weren't really keen on like going to base. 
yeah, it was it was pretty odd and yeah, anticlimactic, I guess, in that yeah, sense. But totally. it's also I, yeah, but great for him. But totally, I'm sure he felt like, what? <laughs> come on, I want to fight a guy into the end zone. What what's going on here? After all the contact he took inside the opponent's ten yard line in the early stages of the season, you think of all those runs he had that were so close, where he got down to the one and had to break six tackles to do it. He finally gets one that uh, is like touch football. So. <laughs> Yeah, but that but what a what a huge first drive. And that was key for so many reasons. The the biggest reason for me is that it chased away the ghosts that would have been hanging over the offense over McLeod Bethel Thompson had they settled for a field goal on that opening drive. Everyone in the stadium and everyone on that sideline, no matter how positive you are, would have been thinking uh-oh, this is what happened last year. Remember when we kicked 16 field goals and couldn't get uh, the ball in the end zone? It was huge for them to be able to open that first drive with a touchdown. Oh, and the other reason, even maybe even more important, is that we talked about how key it was for Toronto get it, to get out in front because you didn't want Montreal to be in a situation where they could just comfortably run the football for the entire second half. And so if you get out to an early lead, discourage them from doing that. But it kind of turned out not to be that kind of game. Montreal, Montreal's running game, uh, you know, wasn't really working at all. It was their passing game. What do you make of, when you look at some of these numbers for Montreal, Yes, they had a huge touchdown run from Stanbeck that went for 52 yards, but you take away those, those 52 yards, they they basically had 40 yards rushing the entire day. Yeah, that's, that's unexpected. Mean, my takeaways were one is Stanbeck is a huge man. Uh, when you see him on the field, like, oh, okay, I can see why he's such a hammer. Um, he's a big dude. And I thought the defensive line and the linebackers did an amazing job not letting him going. Um, you know, Montreal came out, they had a lineman as their, as their wing, which I thought was an interesting wrinkle in terms of the, clearly they were looking to do some power run out of that. If you're going to put your extra lineman in at wing, but, uh, the power run just never, just never, um, materialized for them. The, the D line and the linebackers, um, kept it in check, except for that one, that one, uh, blown play, um, yeah, Montreal. I mean, Montreal threw the ball at will, and I, I, I had said that before the game. I guess I didn't mean it quite so literally. I felt, I felt we we had to shut down the run and live with the pass, and uh, and that's what they did. So you know, I I I have to like their their philosophy because I felt that was a hundred percent. You couldn't, you didn't want both because that's what happened to Hamilton. They got killed by both. And we took away the run and just lived with Harris throwing the ball all over the field. And it just wasn't enough. If you take away that 52-yard run, I'm just looking at this, the numbers here. Take away that 52-yard run. William Stanbeck had 11 carries for 32 yards in that case. And so you're basically talking about just over three yards a carry yeah. for one of the and, best backs in the CFL. And Fletcher was a non-entity and he won the Hamilton game single-handedly. Yeah, Fletcher did nothing. He had three carries for eight yards, didn't have a single reception. He he's a And he's a killer. You talked about him being an X factor in our lead up to this game. You talked about him as being a, a guy that could really change the balance of, of power in this game. And I felt like that was completely a possibility. But yeah, they took him entirely out of that football yeah, game. Yeah, I mean, we almost got done in by <laughs> bloody Philpot. Um, You know, you're, the defense took away... Um, the running game, and they took away Geno Lewis, that should be enough for a dominating win. 
Yeah, Gino Lewis still had 83 yards, but 83 yards, no touchdowns. You'll take that against Gino. Like Lewis is the kind of game changer that can put up three touchdowns in a game. He can put up 150-yard games. And so to me, five yeah, catches were, for 83 yards, that's that's great. You, empty, you'll take that. Lurry yards too. Yeah, and it was, he's, he talked after the game so glowingly of Tyson Philpott. Uh, he actually mentioned in his press conference, he's like, I, I'd be surprised if this guy is not playing down south soon. Yeah. Because he felt like Philpott was that kind of a receiver. He really did tear up the Argos DBs today. Now, is that a concern? The way that he, the way that Philpott succeeded, and he's, I, and we talked about him maybe being like the sort of third option on offense, um, to, to have that kind of player put up big numbers like this. Philpott ends the day, eight catches for 127 and a touchdown. Does that concern you? Um, no, um, it, it doesn't. Harris is a highly accurate quarterback, probably the most accurate quarterback in the league. Uh, and the kid is great. Um, you want a team's number three receiver to be their star. If you're a defense, like you are basically saying, okay, if your number three guy is a star, then you win. Um, and it almost happened. So I think this kid is a star and he was being fed by a highly accurate quarterback. I, I don't think that's replicable. And I don't think we need to sell out the same degree for the run against Winnipeg or BC. There were three Tyson Philpot catches that I kind of want to go through what the defense was doing on them. So one was early on. It was in the first quarter. And it led to Montreal's first points, their first field goal to bring it within 7-3. Philpot was uh, going up the rail. He was in man coverage uh, against uh, Jamal Peters. And Peters seemed to actually be baiting Harris into the throw. He felt like he had good position. He was he was allowing he was allowing himself to kind of look beat, thinking that he could kind of catch up and use his length, which is it's one of his biggest assets. It's just he he gets in, in the way. When he pins a receiver to the sideline, you just can't get it to him. And I guess he felt like he had really good positioning. He got Philpot off his stem a little bit. He was pressed to the sideline. And Harris just delivered a perfect ball. And you could see Peter's ready to jump up for it. And he realized at the last second, I'm not going to get to it because it was in a perfect spot where only Philpot could get to it with a jump. So he takes off into the air. Peters tackles him as soon as he catches it. But I think that was a pretty eye-opening moment for Jamal Peters to say, you know, not only is this kid I'm covering a, an incredible athlete, but what an accurate pass down the sideline from Trevor Harris. And that that's the last time I saw uh, Jamal Peters play sort of loosely in man. They didn't they didn't run a lot of man today, but that was that was the only time I saw him pull that today. And then the other two big plays were were seams where the Argos were hell-bent on stopping those receiver screens that Montreal just wants to run all day long. Now, Toronto runs a lot of those too, but you could see Toronto's defense in their zone coverage, especially to the trip side. Their primary focus is we are not going to let receiver screens out to that side go anywhere. And on both those seam routes where Phil Potts, like the number three receiver in that in that trips look, He's taken off up the seam and you could see both times Argos DBs who are responsible for either deep half or deep third are eyes in the backfield watching the sort of screen action, watching the receiver screen action in the flats. 
And by the time they go to turn, it's too late. Philpot has already got space and Harris is already in the midst of throwing the football. And so th- these are 30-yard plays. Each one of those is 30-yard plays. So you've got 90 yards of Philpot's 127 coming out of those three big plays, one up the sideline, two up the seam. I, I'm not worried about it because I just don't see that. That's that's not pattern building to me. That's just one of those things where, uh, you know, the, the seams are because they're trying to defend something specific. Montreal is doing and and they did they shut those down pretty well and then the other one is just Jamal Peters maybe not realizing the caliber of receiver yeah, well, and quarterback he, he, he was up against put that on film really um you know he wasn't a focus of of their offense and I, I do think they were probably a little surprised at how elite the you know the number three receiver <laughs> became like you know that's that's a lot when your number three receiver is is out there making those kinds of catches, um, you know that's like BC Lions in in May June um, kind of offense. We're like, well, how? Well, I can't stop this. So uh, I, I think they were probably a little surprised. And you know, a kid has a pedigree. Obviously, he, I mean, he's a first round pick, and there's no reason to not believe he. He's not going to be a star. This was really a coming out for him. Yeah, and it was just going all the way back to the combine. He had he had poor combine numbers, and and it shows you how you should not really put too much stock in that because he was a star in university. He was a star out out in in Calgary University, and and he's turning into a star at this level too. So that shouldn't really surprise anybody. But yeah, like I said, you run a bad forty, and everyone's like, oh, that's not. He's not a real football player. Uh, it turns out uh, he's actually quite fast and, and a pretty good, pretty good receiver. So yeah, I'm excited to see him next year. Uh, but I would be even more excited if that's down south instead of uh, <laughs> in Montreal. Yeah. Uh, the the second Argos touchdown it came off of. There's a few points that I want to get to here. So, the the D line was frustrating me early on because they kept allowing Harris to extend plays. Like Trevor Harris is not a, a terribly mobile guy. He, he's a lot like Bethel Thompson, where his running is usually not going to kill you. But if you let either one of these guys break the pocket and extend plays, bad things are going to happen to you on defense. And it seemed like. Every time Harris escaped the pocket, it was the D-line being just a little too aggressive, flying by him. He would roll out, and now there's trouble because the Argos are they're, they're a very zone-heavy team. They're a cover four team. They play some cover two. Either one of those coverages, after five seconds, there are going to be problems. They break down when the quarterback can escape, change the launch point, and now you're four or five seconds into the play. And every single time, he made them pay for it, whether he was finding Speaker or whether he was finding Lewis. Uh, and that was that was just driving me up the wall. So let, let's start with that, and then I'll get to sort of where that turned a little bit. But you're with me on that, right? The Argos just yeah. have to. They've got to contain I, I, and shut down. I don't think contain was probably high on their priority list because he hadn't really shown that to be a big part of him like the way Caleros does. Um, but for sure, um, contain would have been nice. I, I just think it... it <laughs> It wasn't what they were trying to do uh, today. From from a defensive line point of view, I think they really were selling out on that run, and would take his his rollouts, which he hadn't shown really to be as deadly with as as he was today. 
And that's something they cannot let Zach Claris no. do in the Grey Cup. And we don't know still, you know, the, the game's being played as as we're speaking here. It's, you know, there's still time for anything to happen. But we're anticipating a, a Winnipeg win as we have, uh, well, since April, I believe, is when I predicted a Toronto-Winnipeg Grey Cup, JB. Uh, I believe you were on the Riders. Uh, how's that going? <laughs> well, uh, well, I mean, yeah, not well. I don't, I don't have anything. I have, I have no response to that. But yeah, that's like, he looked like Caleros today, the way that he was rolling out to his right and just finding finding ways to make plays. So that's something they, they do have to clean up. And that is a bit of a concern. But one place it, it didn't bite them was uh, it happened again near the end of the first quarter. They go flying by Harris. He steps up. He actually crosses the line of scrimmage as he gets the ball out to Grant. And... Uh, it's stripped by Peters. Peters makes up for that long ball he let up earlier. Grant catches the ball. Peters strips it from him. The Argos recover. They are able to decline that penalty, obviously. And then a few plays later, AJ Olette is in the end zone. It's a swing pass from from MBT, and it's it's fourteen three. That's the the end of the first quarter. What a first quarter! It was exactly the way that you wanted that first quarter to go. If you're an Argo fan, if you're anyone on the Argo sideline as well, they knew we have to get out to an early lead. They went into that first quarter into the wind and come out of it 14-3 after a year of uh, yeah, thinking about all those field goals. Yeah, how they were able to overcome the... The hurricane winds will be a story for another <laughs> get out, get out of here. It was it was a, it was a, windy, all right. What a triumph of man over nature. So into the into the second quarter, and the Argos open it up on a pretty interesting play. So it's second down and one. The Chad Kelly package comes in. Nobody goes out wide with Devaris Daniels, <laughs> and Chad Kelly drops back, and it just it looks like a play from like Little Giants or something like that, where Devaris has just got no one with him. He's able to walk into the end zone. Uh, that's that was just soul crushing for the Alouettes. Oh. The Argos go up twenty one three at that point. What well, I mean, I, I don't, I just don't know. I mean, it, it it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Argos have put they've put that fake on tape. I mean, obviously, even if they hadn't. That's just sort of basic football, but they've had that on tape. I, I'm from. I mean, I'm sure the special team coach is already, um, you know, lying awake, staring at the roof of the bus, wondering about that play. All, all I can assume is uh, I'd have to rewatch it. Maybe maybe Montreal was short a guy. Yeah. So what actually happened there was on the previous play, Sutton was injured. And so Sutton, the halfback, he's the boundary set halfback, he came off and there was confusion in their substitution package. And so when Toronto came out with their short yardage package, that's that's something where Sutton's usually out there on the field for that. There was a miscommunication in the D. Nobody went out there with Devaris. And I, I talked to Devaris after the game about this because I know, you know, having having been in that same situation before, he was lined up wide and I asked him how slow time felt like it was going from the moment that he broke the huddle and saw that nobody came with him to the moment when Chad Kelly snapped the ball. And yeah, he said it was it was crawling by because he's just thinking like he, he said he was trying not to be noticed. He was just staying as still as he could out there on the sideline, hoping no one would look <laughs> over and see like, hey, there's a all-star receiver sitting over there on the sideline. And so, yeah, they snapped the ball. Now, he said they had a passing call anyway. And so it wasn't like a, a huge adjustment that Chad Kelly had to make where he had to like check to something or decide not to not to sneak it and throw it instead that they had a pass on. And so uh, Chad Kelly, though, did spot him 
uh, which also, you know, you know, that also doesn't happen all the time too. Quarterbacking is, is really tough. And I've seen plays before where something like that happens. Nobody goes with a guy and the quarterback doesn't notice it and they carry through with whatever the play was and, and turn away a touchdown. And how, how annoyed would everyone have been if that was just a one-yard sneak for a first down with DeVaris Daniels completely uncovered? But yeah, good, good on Chad Kelly for spotting it. Good on DeVaris for not giving it away and staying still as a statue. And then that's one of the hardest passes in the world to catch, too. When there's nobody near you, you know it's going in for a touchdown. Chad Kelly just lofts it up for him and he walks it in 21-3 Argos. Now, the next thing to happen is the Winton McManus injury. And this this was a crushing moment because, and, and you could see it just in the in the players on the sideline, but even post-game, talking to Enoch Mwamba, he got emotional talking about losing Winton McManus there. And he talked, he actually talked about how angry he was. That was the word he used was was angry because he knows how hard Winton worked to get back from the knee injury. And he looked fantastic. He only he only had a quarter of play before he got hurt, quarter and a bit. And man, he looked good out there. And to rehab your knee all the way back over these last four weeks, where I'm sure he did nothing but rehab morning, noon, and night, he gets out there and they they didn't know for sure. Coach Dinwiddie suggested he, he felt it was a torn bicep, which is probably going to be a, a season, almost certainly going to be a season-ending injury for him with with one game to go and that's it's just crushing to see something like that occur yeah it was amazing to have him back i know the team fed off that for sure and and that opening those opening drives to have him and mwamba shutting down the run um set the tone you know for for the day um yeah it was it was it's tough it's tough to be so excited about having an mvp return and then lose him to another injury but uh you know, from a from a franchise perspective, at least they've had a lot of games to you know to get used to not having Winton. So I think from a from a team perspective, they're prepared to to play well without him. But um, I know he will you know he will be on the sidelines for sure with those guys. Oh yeah, yeah, and he'll be an emotional part of uh, of the team. Yeah, over he'll, the be, next he'll be week. great he'll on be... the sidelines. I mean, having having him as sort of a a coach and a guy that people will listen to, I think is, is, you know, is not, not nothing. I think that's going to be a, a big help. And it looked like that second quarter, it just like McManus goes down and then, then Deshaun Amos goes down. Daniels goes down. It, it was just one after another, after another Priester went down as well. Like it, it looked like the wheels were falling off. Fortunately, most of those guys were able to come back. I know Jamal Peters also got hurt and talking to coach Dinwiddie after the game, he, he said that, the McManus injury is the only one they're concerned about. The rest of the guys, it's going to be, they're going to be sore. You know, it's going to be maybe a couple, couple light days of practice this week in preparation for the Great Cup, which, you know, that's that's not nothing either, but that they should be able to play. They're anticipating that it's only McManus who's not going to be able to to dress and play in this Great Cup game. So that part of it's good, but it it looked it looked thin for a moment when when Amos went down. And Priester went down. You're looking here, and you're just like there. There aren't there aren't any more. Like it's just Sutton. That's the only guy they've got left here, and so it looked to be a bad situation. But fortunately, everybody was able to get back on the field. So the Argos go into halftime. They've got a 24-13 lead, 
and they make the what seems to be controversial call to take the win in the fourth coming out. Stanback runs for that 52-yard play we talked about. It's now 24-21 after Philpot scores on the two-point conversion. He was just wide open in what looked like a bust to me. And uh, I, I still didn't feel. There was never any point in this game. Once it got to 7-0, there was never a point in this game where I felt like the Argos weren't going to win this. It just never... It just didn't feel like that kind of thing to me. And maybe that wasn't the mood. Just judging by Twitter, that was definitely not the mood on Twitter. Twitter was nervous, like you wouldn't <laughs> believe, at 24-21. How did you feel? Um, I was nervous until I saw the drive that they responded with. Um, I felt the first half was certainly as good a first half as McLeod has had. Uh, <clears throat> he looked comfortable. He looked confident. Um the offense looked like they had a game plan. There didn't seem to be any concerns. And when he came out and they immediately responded to what could have been a game-changing, uh, you know, turn of events, uh, I felt I felt very confident after that drive. After that drive, I felt like the offense was, you know, as the defense had done a number of times this season, the offense were, were not going to let uh, this game get, get lost. I had a lot of people asking me what Enoch Mwamba was so upset about in the third quarter. There was a moment where he just got right in the officials' faces uh, near the south end zone. And for a few plays in a row, he went back to talk to the same guys about it. And he was very animated. And that's not something you typically see from from Enoch Mwamba. So I, I asked him about that after the game. And he just felt like there was some stuff that they should have been calling that they weren't. He'd been, it looked to me like he got hit really late on one play. And it. I, I guess he probably interpreted that as as well obviously a late hit but also kind of dirty and he's like you gotta you gotta call that that can't be that can't be something that yeah, you let go I and thought, so i thought montreal played chippy all day and yeah. a couple of times i mean I, I couldn't believe there wasn't a flag i'm like the guys are getting punched in the head i'm like what what, what is this are we playing penitentiary league the longest yard what, what what is happening here that's a flag it's not just well come on guys stop punching each other in the head but that seemed to be the the referee <laughs> philosophy was Come on, fellas, and I'm like okay, you know. And uh, I thought it was a I thought it was a well refereed game, um, largely. I thought they let them play, and no, there weren't that many ticky tack calls. I was happy with the refereeing, but Montreal was definitely chippy. And then at the end, the the referee was surrounded by like eight Alouettes who were all screaming at him as loud as they could. I'm like. I'm sure Edwards was wondering, this isn't a flag. <laughs> it would have been for like, him. They were they were screaming at the referee. That was after the face mask, right? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. What, what is I happening? Know, I couldn't here? believe it. I, I wanted Chris Edwards to come a... out and be like, What? Excuse me, Mr. Referee. Yeah. I would I be think suspended I, for this. I think that referee is just like, this game is almost over. Uh, you know, this yelling will stop soon and I can get oh, out of here. Oh, but yeah, I, would, I couldn't believe there wasn't a flag on that. I laundry patrol right there. I been bang, bang, bang. Who else wants some? <laughs> so uh, the third quarter, fourth quarter is where we saw the double moves. And Coach Dinwiddie likes to do this. He's done this all season long where he sets up plays. And uh, they had been running. Uh, and maybe I should like stop tweeting about this because I, I felt like this was coming. But uh, they ran all hooks a number of times in the first half. And the reason you do that, well, one, it's open. Montreal's playing zone coverage. Uh, all hooks and a trips concept is great. You're, you're always going to find an open guy in zone. But you're, you're trying to set up 
the double move for when you do catch them biting. Just like just like how Montreal did with Toronto looking into the backfield for those receiver screens and turned it back on them with that that seam route. At, at all levels of football, that's what coaches try and do. You spend the first half setting stuff up and then you play off that in the second. And there were some opportunities here. They hit DeVarce Daniels in the third quarter with a really nice sort of uh, double move off of fake screen. And then the second one that would have gone for a touchdown, this was now into the fourth quarter. It it looked like the all hooks look. There was a pump fake from Bethel Thompson and then DeVaris took off again and they just couldn't quite connect. But DeVaris, he, he had him. The DB totally committed to stopping that hook or maybe trying to take it back for a pick six. And that's why you do it. That's why you do it off hooks because it's so tempting for a DB. They can't resist it when they've seen it a few times and they just couldn't connect on that. And that, that must have been so frustrating because as a coach, you spend your time setting that up. You get the okay from the booth to be like, yeah, they're ready. They're set for it. You call it in the perfect situation. That was a second and five, five-yard hook, roll into the into the go. And they just couldn't quite connect on that. It's, yeah, I, it's, I, it's I, fortunate that wasn't a game breaker there because that would have been one you think about in your dreams for, I, for the next 10 years. I'd like to watch that one on replay too. I would say live, it looked like maybe, I don't know if Daniel thought he was getting the ball but didn't look necessarily like there was a hundred percent speed on that play, which is why the ball looks so overthrown, but I got to watch it again. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell. It just looked like an overthrown ball to me, but I wasn't watching Daniels on that. And so I was watching the offensive line because there was some heat sent and I was seeing how they picked it up. But let's just talk about the offensive line for a moment, because I think that kind of goes a little bit unnoticed and all the other things that were going on today, the offensive line played extremely well. They didn't give up a quarterback sack. There were only two hits that I saw Bethel Thompson take, one of which I thought was actually kind of late. Um, it, on, I feel like it was on the touchdown pass to yeah, Gittins yeah, Jr., which is sure. the next was, thing we'll talk to. Yeah, and, and that probably should have been flagged, but what a job the offensive line did, not only in pass protection, but in creating lanes, Toronto had an effective run game. They had over 100 yards rushing. Bethel Thomas with 300 yards passing and didn't get sacked once, barely got touched uh, legally uh, in the entire game. So, yeah, tip of the hat to that whole offensive line unit. Yeah, they well, I mean, you know, uh, they're all very good. And I'm not just praising on Hunter, but Hunter really solidified it. You know, everybody is where they're supposed to be now. And now that they've had some time to get some more playing reps, they're only getting better as a group. I, th- I thought they played fantastic today. And, you know, I, I think that is the unnoticed, but the most impressive takeaway from the game for me is how good that offensive line played. They played like an elite offensive line today. I know they're not road graders, but that's okay. You know, they're still fine in the run and excellent in pass pro and they played really really well i i thought it was by far the best game of the season for the offensive line and here's why because not only do they have the numbers and the lack of sacks and everything else but montreal what it's not like they were just running base defense there were a number of times where i thought oh here comes zero and we've seen that over the last few weeks they've been very aggressive with blitzes and instead it was some sort of uh exotic zone blitz that we haven't seen them run before or they would just all bail out and just rush three and we've seen 
communication issues earlier in the season come from that. And I think having two straight weeks where you can work on things that have been an issue, I, I think probably helped this offensive line unit more than anything else. And it allowed some of their guys to get healthy, like Philip Lake, who I, I had, I don't know, but I have to imagine, you know, he's feeling it after this long season. And I know John Allen has been hurt pretty much all year as well. And those guys, Blake playing out of position, Darius Bladek playing at an all-star caliber level. Justin Lawrence has been amazing. And then you, of course, mentioned Ryan Hutcher. All five of these guys, I'm hoping, I'm hoping they were celebrated in the locker room today because that unit should get a game ball after a game like this. Let's talk about that Curly Gittens Jr. touchdown catch. Have you ever seen a prettier pass delivered from McLeod Bethel Thompson on that seam route to Curly Gittens Jr.? Gittens had a step on his man and Bethel Thompson, who isn't, if there's one flaw in Bethel Thompson's game, and there, there might be a couple small flaws in Bethel Thompson's game, as good as I think he is, every quarterback's got something that they still need to work on. His is probably the deep ball and, uh, you know, hitting hitting open receivers on on deep routes. Although I thought he uh, he put one on the money that that Phillips dropped today, a corner route early on in the game. There was one that that Devaris was it Devaris that dropped one down yeah, the sideline that the first half. Yeah, that uh, that I thought was a beautiful ball, too. Um, he was on today with those deep throws. And this was just a gorgeous pass. And I want to also shout out Curly Gittens Jr. on this play because while it was put in a perfect spot for him, I'm telling you, it is not it is not without fear that you go after all out for a ball like that, knowing that you are a few mere feet from the uprights. And Gittens Jr. clearly didn't have that in his mind. He fully extended, caught the pass, rolled with it into the end zone. But like we saw with the Tommy Neal touchdown a few weeks ago now, Running seams, uh, you know, up the uh, up the hash marks like that. Running post routes like Tommy Neal did. As you get close to that upright pole, you think about it because this is not the same as running into a halfback. You are running into a solid metal no. pole. I mean, you see offensive coordinators. I mean, that's not by accident. They're, you know, that's that's a that is definitely an edge to be pushed because you've got a natural or an unnatural pick, um, you know, so offensive coordinators are definitely pushing that envelope. So, you know, I hope everybody stays safe. Yeah. It's, it's, it terrified me. As soon as that left Bethel Thompson's hand, I'm thinking, do not be at the upright. Cause you know, Gittins is going to go after it. It's a playoff game. It's the Eastern final. This is going to be a touchdown. And I just, I couldn't from, from my perspective in the press box, I can't, quite gauge the depth there so i couldn't tell how close he was going to get to it but yeah 100 percent focus i'd love to see more i mean that's i've been you know ranting about that or commenting intelligently depending on your choice uh i'd love to see more seam throws for mcbeth uh, you know he, he he's got a gun and i know he love those he he can throw the deep ball and he can throw the outs but i'd love to see more of those uh worked in because i think that's an aspect of his game that um, I think can really really punish teams because he can he can put it on a laser when he is throwing between the uh, hash marks. 
and we get to the fourth quarter and the fourth quarter from a scoreboard point of view is boring only three points are scored in the fourth quarter and three by the alouettes but i want to highlight the job that toronto did in this fourth quarter which never happens in the cfl you see so many possessions in the fourth quarter of a tight football game like this because it's it just the way the clock works, you're inevitably going to have several shots at it. Like how many times have you heard commentators talk about, yeah, there's only a minute, 31 seconds remaining, but you know, we could see we, there's enough time for to run like 25 plays. It, it's, it's true. This, the CFL fourth quarter takes forever and you have chance after chance after chance today in the fourth quarter, Montreal had two possessions. They started right at the beginning of the fourth uh, fourth quarter with the football. They punted it away, and they weren't punting a lot today either, but they punted away at 11.44. Toronto puts together a, a time-consuming drive. They take up four minutes of clock time, punt it back to Montreal, uh, like half the punts of this game are in the fourth quarter. Montreal does get put a field goal together there to bring it within seven, but there's 425 left on the clock when they score. And you're like, okay, well, Montreal obviously is going to get a few more cracks at this to try and tie this up. Toronto needs to needs to put up a quick score or just, you know, take some time off the clock. They ran it all off. All four minutes and 25 seconds get run off the clock as, as they just pound the football. It was run, 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 run. That is how the timeline leads. And then kneel down, kneel down, end of game. That is an impressive display. Yeah, I mean, that that's the two-headed monster. That's kind of the dream. Um, and to, you know, of course, it's sweet to to Montreal, the Alouettes. Um, and uh, to just to do a four-minute drill was really really impressive uh the fact that they were able to to never give them a shot um that yeah like for sure it was almost like an nfl ending um the way they just never gave the ball back um really really impressive by by because and 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 you know montreal knows it's run you know so you're not doing this in the middle of the game i mean they know run is coming and to still be able to get yards um, I think is a credit to that offensive line and and Olette and Harris who who worked beautifully together. I, I was really happy with how uh, how well they complemented each other. Oh yeah, yeah. They they played beautifully yeah, together I thought the today. Coaches did a really great job of. It, it felt like they'd been a two headed monster for you know all season. Yeah, because that's the fear is that you get to a situation like this and sometimes it's almost like, well, I don't know which toy to play with. There's so many, you know, it's Christmas morning and you're like, I don't know what to do. And it, and it never felt like that. Like Coach Dinwiddie clearly had a plan. He used both Olette and Harris as decoys in various different situations. He played off of tendencies. It was perfectly set up. This is, you know, we talked about how this is probably the best game that McLeod Bethel Thompson has ever played as a quarterback. Just given given the stakes, the stage, the level of competition, the weather, everything else that that hurricane wind that you keep talking about, <laughs> and uh, this is this is the best game that McLeod Bethel Thompson has played. And both Coach Dinwiddie said that after the game, and McLeod Bethel Thompson agreed. And and I think I have to say that too. But this might also be the best game coach Dinwiddie has coached he still he still threw an ill-advised challenge flag which you know maybe that's just going to be his thing for his whole coaching career but he coached a heck of a game today yeah they um 
you know, they really, if if Philpot doesn't turn into, you know, the second coming of, uh, I don't know, Milt Stiegel or something out there, they probably win going away. It felt like it was going to be like that. It took it took Tyson Philpot playing out of his mind yeah. to keep Montreal in it because I had predicted a thirty to seventeen score in this game, and I really felt like that's what I got. Uh, it just uh, you know I didn't anticipate Tyson Philpot being Mill Stiegel, like you said, and that was you know that was something that the Argos obviously weren't expecting either because because who would? But yeah, you, know, you know, tip your hat to him too uh, for an incredible game, and so yeah, the the Argos win it, they hang on, they win by a touchdown, and man, that uh, that felt pretty good. The smile on the faces of the players, the coaches, the celebrations that, that we got to see little pieces of uh, really show you what an emotional game this is and and also how tight that room is it, it's not always like that with football teams and it's not always been like that with toronto argonauts teams that we've seen in the past this is a really close group of guys winning always helps that but they were they were happy for each other as well as being happy for themselves and they don't have that much time to celebrate you know you celebrate tonight and now tomorrow morning you're you're prepping for the Grey Cup, but I wouldn't be surprised if McLeod Bethel Thompson's already in there watching film, getting himself ready. Because the, these guys are, this is not far enough. You know, this is not a team that's celebrating. Yay, we got to the Grey Cup. Every one of them after the game, you know, they're sitting they're sitting next to the the Eastern uh, Trophy, and the trophy is sort of symbolically like half a, a maple leaf, and sort of half because it's you know you've you've got half the job done. You know, we got there. But now the goal is obviously win the Grey Cup. And talking to some of those players after the game, guys that have been there, you know, Enoch Mwamba hasn't been to the Grey Cup in 11 years. He was the one that brought that up, not me. Uh, and, you know, Coach Dinwiddie has, has quarterbacked in a Grey Cup. Uh, he's been to Grey Cups as, as a coach. You know, the, these are guys that have, that have won and have been there and have experienced that. There's a bunch of guys on this team that have. Um, and getting there is not enough for any of these guys. No, and it will be... Uh your Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Yeah, Winnipeg Blue Bombers are um, are going to be the opponent here as uh, as the, the clocks are getting close to zero now. 28-20 looks like the Blue Bombers are going to pull this one out. So, um, yeah, the, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, as I, as I foresaw, we apparently didn't need to run this whole season if we'd all just <laughs> listened to me back in April. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't call it a profile in... Uh, encouraged to choose the west and east uh winning teams from last year but uh, uh yeah i you know i i think it was a perfectly logical choice that ended well up. i don't know perfectly logical even like two weeks ago everyone's like well hamilton's obviously coming out no, of the no, east he's not that i mean those, <laughs> we're not talking about those people Yes, that's true. All right, let's get to our let's get to our players of the game, our plays of the game. Let's start on the offensive side of the ball. There's so many guys you can go with here. JB, who's your offensive player of the game? Uh, wow, bunch of choices. Um, you know, I'm one that you shout out uh, shout out Olette. I thought he played fantastic. Um, he was just a load. But I have to go Curly Gittins Jr. again. Nine for nine, nine targets, nine catches. Absolutely you know, fought for every yard after he caught the ball. Very physical for a wide receiver. I thought really kind of fit the tone of the offense that that they were going to be a physical team against Montreal. And uh, and he cut the winning touchdown. You know, what what more can you ask for from, uh, you know, from, from your receiver who's not your star receiver? Um, you know, so I, I thought Curly Gittins Jr. was 
unbelievable all day. And he had a couple. He had a couple of plays that I thought were like they don't stand out as highlights, but like there was a second and six that he converted in the fourth quarter to keep a drive yeah. alive, where he he wasn't open. Uh, Murray was just draped all over him. Bethel Thompson put it in a spot where his guy had a chance at it, and he just did so well to box Murray out somehow, uh, catch that that football, you know, tight to his pads, and and make that first down. And that was that led to a few more. Uh, a few more minutes, minutes being drained off the clock and, and really made a difference. He was clutch all game long. He played like one of the guys you would expect to play like that, you know, who had been to the Grey Cup year after year, who's been an all-star for five or six seasons straight. That was the level of play we got from Curly Gins Jr. Yeah. today. He was he was the best player on the football field. He was. I mean, nine for nine is huge. That is such an accomplishment as a receiver. Yeah, and almost 100 yards on that too, and of course the touchdown. So yeah, I I, I completely agree with you. I'm going to go a different direction here, just because I, I think we've got a lot of uh, laurels to spread around. Um, I will also tip my hat to AJ Olette. Great game with 38 yards rushing and 53 yards receiving, including that that huge uh, uh, screen pass and touchdown reception in the first quarter. Uh, but I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give my player of the game to McLeod Bethel Thompson. He ends up with over 70 percent completions. And that's with a few drop balls, you know, really four, four of his incompletions that could have gone a different way. You've got, or, or five, you've got three drops, you've got that foot out of bounds from Banks, you've got the sliding Banks that maybe he got his knee down in. He was accurate today. He could really have been 23 or 24 of 27 and, uh, you know, still ends up over 70%, 300 yards passing, two touchdowns, heck of a day from him. He extended plays nicely, bought his guys time to get open. So yeah, that's, that's my offensive player of the game. Where are you going on defense? Mm, Well, I thought the defensive line played really, really well today. Um, But I have to go Mwamba again. Um, I thought he played unbelievable in that Montreal game, uh, the one that mattered. And I thought he was all over the place in the first half today. Um, just absolutely stoning uh, Stanback, which is no easy task. Uh, I thought he played really, really well. And, and they eliminated Montreal's running game. And I think he was a, you know, a huge part of that. I thought, I thought he, he really has kind of, he's always, he's always good. But there's a gear he's had these last two games. Um, that's great to see. I, you know, there's he's he's taking over games at linebacker. And I agree with that. I thought he was he was probably the best player on defense today. But I, I, you know, who was right on his tail was Dwayne Hendricks, who had a heck of a game. They he was left one on one a lot today. They were paying a lot of attention to Sean Oakman. There were also uh, pressure packages Toronto was dialing up, which left. Uh, Hendricks one-on-one and he won almost every single one of those matchups he ended up with six tackles which is unusual playing in the middle like that especially in a CFL game he had a sack which was a massive sack those those back-to-back sacks at the end of the second quarter were were pretty big and so you know him contributing in on that I I think earns him a defensive player of the game not as well and as much as you know looking at the rest of the players too it it, it's not like anyone played a bad game on defense. You look at the yardage that Trevor Harris put up and you're like, well, yeah, someone must have had a really off game, 362 and a touchdown, but it just didn't really feel like that. It was just more scheme-based. I thought I thought the defense played pretty well despite surrendering 27 points. I, I just don't, I don't really know. I don't really know if there's fingers to point. 
no, I, I think that was the plan. I think the plan was to take away the run and live with the pass, and, and that's exactly what happened. All right, plays of the game. Uh, there are a ton here, too. Some really obvious ones, some more obscure ones. What is your play of the game, JB? Uh, I think, I, you know, building on what you were talking about, the four-minute drive at the end, I think uh, AJ Olette, uh, they, they gave him nine. I would have some questions on that spot. I thought it was a full 10. Um, when he he ran for nine yards and really kind of iced it where didn't officially end the game, but I think emotionally Montreal knew that they were just hanging on now and Toronto felt like the thing was over. And and that was an amazing play um, to go get that. He was incredible in the four-minute drive, but I, I thought that nine-yard run slash 10-yard run uh, for, for AJ was, uh, was the play of the game to cinch it. And for me, I'm going all the way back to the first quarter for a play that I love and hate, and yet I do think it might have been the, the play of the game. Second and 15 from the Montreal 22, Bethel Thompson rifles it out to Brendan Banks. And, you know, we talked about this play. He drops it initially, hacky sacks it back up to himself and catches it as he's rolling to the ground. First of all, great job on the officials for actually ruling it, correctly ruling it, a completed pass. But that play is big for so many reasons. I highlighted a few of them already. Well, I forgot to highlight the fact that Montreal was forced to use a challenge. And I think you have to challenge. That was such a that was such a huge play, even though we're only five minutes into the football game. That was a huge uh, momentum swinging play. And so I do think Montreal is correct to challenge that, to throw that flag. But it was the correct call. Banks somehow was able to keep that alive. And then you don't have those ghosts hanging over your head. They're able to take it in for a touchdown. You convert an almost impossible second down, uh, especially in tight to the end zone like that. that. That was a massive play. And yes, I'm annoyed at Banks for taking his head off the ball and losing focus. But ultimately, he made the play. And that play in itself might have been the biggest play of the day. Well, that will just about do it for us, JB. We've got a Grey Cup week to prepare for. We've got hours of film to do. We'll obviously have a Grey Cup preview coming your way, so look out for that. And you've got to check out JB's report card, which will be posted shortly. <laughs> the Argos are going to the Grey Cup in Regina after downing the Montreal Alouettes 34-27. For JB, this is Ben Grant saying so long, and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. I'll see ya. <laughs> Fight the foe, foe.